Good morning, Fellowship. Great to be with you this morning. I'm coming to you from our Franklin campus. Uh, For those of you that attend Fellowship Franklin, you've not been in this space in in almost 100 days, if you can believe that. And I'm here partly because we're getting excited about our reopening coming up on July 5th. Uh, A number of you earlier this week were with us on Wednesday night for our worship night on the lawn at Brentwood campus. There was an energy to be back together that I could almost feel, and it just made me so excited about seeing you all soon. So I look forward to that greatly on July 5th. We've been in this series now. It's our second week. Lloyd introduced it last week called The Wilderness. And the subtitle for this series is Where God Shapes His People. And if you missed last week's sermon, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. it. Lloyd did a fantastic job of setting the stage for where we're going in this series. And one of the things he said is he said, you know, a wilderness doesn't have to be physical. A wilderness can be emotional or financial or relational, even spiritual. You know you're in a wilderness when you enter a season of uncertainty. In fact, the way that Lloyd uh, defined the wilderness is a place of extraordinary uncertainty. So anytime that your circumstances are uncertain, your health is uncertain, your finances are uncertain, maybe you just don't know which way to go. God has not shown up in your life visibly to sort of see him lead you. You might say, I'm in a wilderness. By the way, I think it's helpful to name it. In other words, it's helpful when you're in a wilderness season to be able to say, I'm in a wilderness season. Because then you can look for God to start showing up in some amazing and beautiful ways as he always does in the wilderness. So we're tracking in this series through the story of the Exodus. The Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, have just been released from slavery, from bondage in Egypt. And we're going to be covering some of the years between the moment they were released from slavery and then many years later when they get into the promised land. That was their wilderness time. That was their in-between And every week, Lloyd and I are going to be sharing with you one or more lessons from the wilderness, in particular, the ways that God shows up in our lives in sometimes spectacular, sometimes subtle ways as we are in our own wildernesses. So last week, Lloyd began with three lessons, and we're just going to recap these really, really briefly. The first lesson from last week, God leads us into the wilderness, He put a map up on the screen. And if you recall from this map, what you see is there would have been a much quicker way for God to lead the people from Egypt to Israel, the promised land. He could have just gone essentially straight east. It would have taken them along the Mediterranean coast, would have been a lot shorter, a lot more pleasant. God didn't do it that way. Instead, he led them down into the Sinai Peninsula, down into the wilderness where resources are scarce, where there's not a lot, where he would provide for them. So that was the first lesson from last week. God is the one who leads us into the wilderness. Lesson number two, God's presence is with us in the wilderness. And this is the moment where Lloyd reminded us of the cloud by day and the fire by night. And he encouraged us to take off our shoes and write cloud on one and fire on the other. In fact, I've done that with these shoes, and uh, it's reminded me as I've been walking through the week this week, every step, God is with us. And that's the reason that we want you to write on your shoes with a Sharpie marker to remind you every step 
where you go, if you get discouraged in the wilderness, you can pull off your shoe and remember that God is with you like he was the nation of Israel. Uh, By the way, a really cool story in my own house happened this week. One of my daughters, Ansley, didn't have shoes on on that morning when Lloyd was teaching, and so she took a Sharpie on her feet. As I know some of you did as well, we've seen your pictures of of writing on your feet. And uh, two days later, she had a friend of hers from her high school came over to hang out with her during the day. And and this is uh, a friend, doesn't go to our church, doesn't go to any church, doesn't know anything about the Bible. And this friend said, what in the world is you have cloud and fire written on your feet? And so for 30 minutes, my daughter had the opportunity to tell her about God's story and about the way he led the people in the wilderness. And, and she, she said she started Abraham and ended, I think, with Jesus. <laughs> pretty, pretty cool, pretty spectacular. So let's let this remind us that God is with us. The third lesson from last week is that God's purpose in every wilderness is his glory. And that is a segue to our text this morning. We're going to talk about how God's glory begins to be seen, begins to be manifest in an amazing way in the wilderness. So we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 14, the very next verse from where Lloyd left off last week. We're going to start in verse 5 with this story that's going to sound familiar to many of you, but I can't wait to unpack some uh, hopefully new insights from this well-known text this morning. Exodus 14, verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now, remember, Pharaoh finally, reluctantly, let the people go after the 10th plague that God brought upon the nation of Israel. It was the the plague of the death of the firstborn. And now a little bit of time has passed. Pharaoh is probably somewhat recovered from his grief, and he has a change of heart. He's realizing or thinking about the implications to his economy of losing his free labor force, his slave labor force. Um, Isn't it sad that this man, this leader of this powerful nation of Egypt, cared more about the economy of his country than he did about the lives of these people that he had enslaved uh, to his nation? So in this rage, he sets off, he forms an army, and he sets off to go uh, enslave them back, either slaughter them potentially or at least bring them back and, and make them slaves again. Uh, interesting that the text mentions 600 chariots. The chariot was the most intimidating weapon of the day. Um, Israel didn't have anything like a chariot. Israel didn't have weapons. They, they, they weren't military in any way, shape, or form. Um, a well-trained unit of chariots could could cut through a, a rank of even well-trained soldiers uh, li- like a knife through butter. I mean, no resistance at all. It was a terrifying weapon. And here the Israelites were very vulnerable, not even having any soldiers. The story goes on. Let's look at verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Now, this is interesting to read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and it's not the first time in the book of Exodus that God has done just that. During the whole plague season, it continues as God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What's going on with this? 
It's such an interesting metaphor, isn't it? To think of your heart uh, being hardened. I, I think most of us kind of know actually what that, that feels like. The, the best way that I would encourage you to think about this, as I've been thinking and, and, uh, and really doing a lot of study on this idea of hardening, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, is that God gave Pharaoh over to his anger. He gave him over to his bitterness. He gave him over to his internal rage and Pharaoh's own selfish determination to re-enslave the people. God gave him over to it. And, and in a sense, what you're going to see is even that ultimately is going to be for God's glory. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Uh, you see the mention of the word eyes. I want you to pay attention to what the eyes of the Israelite people are focused on throughout this whole text. Remember who'd been leading them? God had been leading them. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God himself had led them in the wilderness. God had led them to this very spot right up against the sea. And suddenly they turn their eyes, they lift their eyes, and now they're no longer looking at the God who has led them, but they're now looking at their enemy who is coming up from behind, coming up in the rear. And at that very moment, when they lift their eyes to their enemy, they lose their faith. Water on one side, an angry army on the other side. Uh, Lloyd described it last week using the best description. They were literally between a rock and a hard place, and it was God who had led them there. God who had purposed for them to be there. And so what do they do? They, they actually they, they, they do something that you and I would do. They cry out to God right here in our text. They cried out to God. Now, this is good to cry to God. In fact, earlier in Exodus, um, we find out that God had heard the cries of his people. And, and that's why he decided now was the time to release them from bondage in Egypt. He'd heard their cries. So crying out to God is a good thing. But we're about to learn in our next verse that this was not the cry of a call for help. This was the cry of a complaint. And let's take a look in verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Uh, you guys remember that uh, the famous scene from the movie Braveheart where uh, Mel Gibson you know, calls out, um, uh, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. This is not that. This, this is the opposite of that. This is the people that are saying, um, don't let them take our lives. You know, they can have our freedom, but not our lives. It's better for us to be slaves back in Egypt, where at least we had some tasty things to eat, than it is for us to be led out here in the wilderness and, and die. Um, what's interesting about this is they're complaining to Moses, but they're really complaining about God. And so in essence, what they're saying is, we saw God do all those miracles in Egypt but where is he now? Um, we, we saw God show up, but guess where he led us? He led us into a trap. He led us into this place where we're no longer sure we can trust him. In fact, what if it was his intention all along just to lead us out here to kill us? At the heart of Israel's fear is a foundational distrust in their God. Specifically, they are not trusting his love for them. 
They're not trusting his care for them. Or, or perhaps they're not trusting his power, that he's strong enough to deliver them, even in this pickle that they find themselves in. By the way, those things are at the heart of every fear. At the heart of every fear are foundational distrusts of either God's power or his love. Anytime we're afraid, that's ultimately where our heart is. Now, Moses is about to have one of his greatest moments as a leader. And I want you to see what he says in verse 13 and 14. It's fantastic. Here's how Moses replies. Moses said to to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Isn't that good? This is Moses at his best. Now, remember I told you, follow the eyes, where the, where the gaze, where the eyes of the Hebrew people go. L- look at where this is in these verses. I-, I want you to track with the word see. We'll, we'll highlight the word see in the text on the screen so you can see it. Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Moses is telling them where to put their eyes. And he's, he's kind of saying, right now you see this army coming after you, but this is the last time you'll ever see him. And he's saying, you want to see something really good? You want to you see where reality is? You want to see where truth is? Then direct your eyes to the Lord. See the salvation of the Lord. He's saying, just watch. You're going to see his intentions for you. You're going to see how he cares for you. You're going to see how you can trust him. Stand back, stop talking, be silent. Let God be God. Just watch. That's what Moses is telling them here. He's essentially saying, stop looking over there. Stop focusing on your fear. If you do, you'll miss the miracle that's about to happen. Now, sometimes as a Bible teacher, I kind of have to dig for, for you know, really clear, helpful application. Other times, it's just right here. And I want you to think about this for a minute. If you want to know what the Bible says, about what to do in times of fear when you're in the wilderness. Here it is. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Straight from the text. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Moses is saying, don't fear and don't flee. Stay where you are, but turn your eyes to your Lord. Turn your eyes to the God of your salvation. Now, let's see what happens as this story continues. We'll pick it up in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now we start to see what God's plan had been all along. It turns out it had been a trap, but not a trap for the Israelites, a trap for the Egyptians. And they're about to ride those fancy chariots right into it. Now, why is God doing it this way? You know, he, he could have stopped the Egyptians from ever leaving Egypt with their army. You know? he, he could have just wiped them out with, with another plague when they're on their way before they even got in sight of 
the Israelites. Why did God do it this way? He wants the Israelites to see. And not only that, he wants the Egyptians to see. Right here, verse 18, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, by the way, I don't know if you ever knew this or realized this or not, but think back on the story of the 10 plagues. Every one of those 10 plagues corresponded to one of the Egyptian deities, the the false gods, the so-called gods that the Egyptians worshiped. So for example, they worshiped the God of the Nile. So what does God do? He turns the Nile River into blood. They, They worshiped a God who had the image of a frog. So what does God do? He says, well, you worship a frog, I'll show you frogs. You know, you're gonna get more frogs than you can know what to do with. So every single plague of these 10 all corresponded to one of the Egyptian deities. So God is very purposefully, very intentionally showing the Egyptians and the Israelites who the one true God is. And right here, he's saying, listen, I've got one more for you. I've got one more power, one more thing that I want to show you to to teach the Egyptians that their gods are not gods. And this is how he's going to accomplish this. Now, last week, Lloyd's third, third lesson was God's purpose in every wilderness is his glory. This week, we're going to take that another step further. And we're going to start to see how God lives out that purpose, how how that purpose becomes reality. So here's our first lesson from this morning's text. We're going to have two lessons. This is lesson number one. The wilderness creates the perfect backdrop to see God's glory on display. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The wilderness creates the perfect backdrop to see God's glory on display. If circumstances had not been so dire and so frightening and so, so uh, uh, scary for the Israelites, they would not be able to see God's salvation as clearly. Uh, I want to illustrate this using two images, and we'll put those on the screen. This, this first one, you can see, what is this? Well, it's a, a beautiful landscape picture, and this was taken somewhere way up north. If you look closely in the sky of this image, you can see some green you can see some color. These are the northern lights, but they're the northern lights during the daytime. Now, I want you to see the next image, which is what it looks like at night. When things go dark, when things go black, when things get scariest, God's glory gets brightest. Do you see how this works? Sometimes in our lives, things need to get dark for us to fully see the glory of God that is all around us all the time. Sometimes we need to experience the night. Sometimes we need to experience the wilderness because the wilderness is the perfect backdrop to see God's glory on display. And that's what's happening right here in our text. Let's continue in the story, verse 19 Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night." Now, this is very interesting. In some ways, it's confusing because you've got an angel of God and then you have a cloud and darkness, but then it says it lit up the night. So you've got darkness and light. It's a little bit confusing to know what's going on. Uh, Remember that the cloud and the fire both represent God's presence. 
So if you think about it this way, up until this point, the cloud and the fire had been in front of them in order to guide them. At this point in the story, the presence of God now moves from the front where he had been guiding them to the rear where he will now guard them. God is literally putting himself between his people and their enemies. It's like that moment in so many movies where the hero steps in and and looks at the bad guy and says, if you want to get to her, you got to get through me. It's exactly what God is doing here. Now, what I think is literally specifically going on is the cloud and the fire now are, are both appearing at the same time. I, I believe from studying this that when it talks about the angel of God, it's talking about the fire, the presence of God in fire. In fact, we're going to see that in, in a following verse. So the cloud is there and the angel, the fire is there, the presence of God. But I think here's how they were positioned. The fire was between the two, but on the Israelite side to give them light so that they could cross the sea in the middle of the night. The cloud was right next to the fire, but on the Egyptian side to block the light of the fire and keep the Egyptians in the darkness so that they can't go forward, so that they can't see, so that they can't march across the sea. And by this way, the presence of God is protecting the Israelites and giving them time and space to begin their trek across the sea. So cool. Now let's go to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire there's the the presence of God in the fire, and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Funny how they're just figuring that out. After 10 plagues, after the, the, the cloud and fire trick, it is only just now that they finally say, oh, God is fighting for them against us. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is one of the most memorable scenes in the entire Bible. And for good reason. Like, this is amazing. Just let your imagination just, just picture, you know, what this would have been like. And I want your imagination to go one other place, too. I want you to think about the Israelites' shoes. I want you to think about their sandals, you know, what, what they're wearing on their feet. Remember at the end of the service last week, Lloyd reminded us that God miraculously sustained their shoes through all their wilderness wanderings. 
every time they put those shoes on was a reminder that God was with them. And here they are, right near the beginning of their journey, just starting off, so far to go. And in those shoes, they are walking across a sea that is parted from them. They are getting Red Sea mud on the bottom of those shoes so that every time in the future, throughout the next 40 years, when they see that mud, they will remember. Now, in verses 30 and 31, we're going to get the postscript, the lesson of all of this, what the Israelite people took away from this incredible miracle. Here it is, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Notice that word saw. Their eyes now see the salvation of their God. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So this is the takeaway from all of this for the nation of Israel. And it is huge. I want you to think about something. God led the people into the wilderness uh, for many reasons, all for his glory. But one of the reasons he led them there was so that he could form them into a nation. They left Egypt, not a nation. They will emerge in 40 years in the promised land as a nation. And this is one of the most important moments in their nation. This is the moment where their fear was transformed. It was transformed from an unhealthy fear of their enemy into a healthy fear of their God. This is the moment that their gaze, their eyes, their gaze was redirected. It was redirected from seeing only their circumstances around them to seeing the God who is over their circumstances. And this single moment will go on to become the definition of salvation for the Hebrew people for thousands of years. All the rest of the Old Testament, in fact, all the way up to the cross, this is the single most important moment for God's people to understand what it means for God to save them, for God to show up, and for God to rescue them. In this moment, the people of God saw his heart for them and his power. They saw his heart, his care, his love, and they saw his absolute power over all forces, natural, spiritual, and human. And, and I want to say it's not until Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, that the people of God once again see this kind of heart and power combination together. This moment, in many ways, is the most important moment in the history of Israel. And it all happened. Don't miss this. It all happened because God led his people into the wilderness. So this brings us to our second lesson, our second and final lesson from our text this morning. Here it is. The wilderness is not something to be rescued from. It's the place where God rescues us. If you get this lesson, men and women, the wilderness starts making sense. Because I want you to think about this. How many of our prayers boil down essentially to God, keep me out of the wilderness? Or, or when we're in the wilderness, God, get me out of the wilderness as soon as you possibly can. We don't like the wilderness because by very definition, it is uncertain. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's lonely. I get all that. Believe me, I don't like being in a wilderness any more than you do. But here's what scripture is telling us. The wilderness is a place of uncertainty, yes, 
but it is also a place of salvation. All throughout the Bible, God consistently shows up in wilderness places. Places where there's no water, he shows up. Where there's no food, he shows up. Where the enemy is all around, he shows up. Uh, when people are desperate, when, when there seems to be no hope, that's where and when God shows up. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. In all those stories, he doesn't show up to rescue his people from the wilderness. He shows up to rescue them in the wilderness, to provide for them, to sustain them, to give them what they need in the wilderness. God is a God who delights to save his people in the wilderness, not from it. I want to ask you to go ahead and get your communion cups, uh, your communion elements ready, your your juice, uh, your bread, whatever you have there at the house. Uh, Go ahead and get that ready. And and we've got a few more minutes here in this message, but I want to give you this time now to be getting this ready. And as you do, I hope you're also able to to stay focused as I bring in one last point here that I think will start to stitch all this together with where we are right now in 2020. Moses was a mediator for the people. Here's what that meant. Moses was the go-between between God's people and God himself. Uh, If you notice, twice in the story, God commands Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea. And it says, Moses stretched out his hand, and then it says, the Lord parted the waters. Now, interestingly, God actually commands Moses to stretch out his hand, and then he says, and part the water. God's telling Moses to part the water. Can Moses part the water? Not on his own. The second time, God says, Moses, stretch out your hand, and guess what? The waters return. Now, who was acting? Moses? or God? Of course, it's both. It's God's power, but it's God's power that's flowing through Moses' obedience. This kind of language is all over Exodus. We're we're going to see this all throughout our journey with the people of Israel through the wilderness. Um, This kind of of language where it's like, sometimes it's confusing. Who did the miracle? Who's Who's acting here? Is it Moses leading or is it God leading? Is it Moses who did the miracle with his staff or is it God who did the miracle? And, And if God's doing the miracle, why use Moses? I mean, it's very, very interesting. From the people's perspective, it's usually Moses is the one that they see doing the work. God could have done it without Moses. Instead, he chose to do it through Moses. Why? Well, there's several reasons, which we'll get into over the next couple of months. But the most important reason is that God was giving his people a category for another mediator who would one day come. God was using Moses to point ahead, to foreshadow, to preview our need for someone to come between us and a holy God. Someone to talk to God on our behalf. Someone to plead our case. Someone to take our guilt. And then most importantly, men and women, listen to this, someone to split the waters for us. And now I'm not talking about the waters of the sea, which which comparatively were actually small. I'm talking about the waters between life and death. I'm talking about the waters between heaven and hell. God knew we need someone to split the waters and make a path for us so we can walk on dry ground to the other side. Jesus is the greater mediator. Jesus is the greater Moses, the one that Moses was pointing to, the mediator between us and God. 
And so let me just say this with, with all the hopefully clarity and also all the passion that I can muster. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your mediator, as the one who pleads your case before holy God, here's your opportunity to do it. But here's what I want to say to you. The first thing you have to do is you have to let God lead you into the wilderness. What do I mean by that? You will never cry out for rescue until your own resources are exhausted. Until your own uncertainty in your own heart, your own pride breaks, until you begin to realize that you've come to the end of yourself. You will never cry out for rescue. You will never cry out for salvation. In other words, until you're in the wilderness of your own soul, you'll never admit that you can't make life work apart from God, apart from salvation, apart from healing, apart from rescue. You will never cry out for salvation until you recognize the wilderness of your own soul. But once you do, you can cry out, not a cry of complaint, but a cry of rescue. God, save me. Rescue me by the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ by his life, death, and resurrection. And guess what? Jesus will save you in the wilderness because God delights to save in the wilderness. So I just want to ask you, are you there right now? Have you recognized, and even those of you that, that, that put your faith in Christ maybe years ago, can you recognize even this very moment your need for Jesus, your need for him in your life? the wilderness that is in your own soul, not just the wilderness of your circumstances, but your own emptiness, your own need, your own heartache inside of you. Can you acknowledge that? And then look to Christ in faith. Put your eyes on Jesus, not on the circumstances, not on the fear. Put your eyes, put your gaze on your salvation. Can you do that this morning? Can we do that together as a body this morning? If that describes you, maybe for the very first time in your life or, or maybe for the thousandth time in your life, if that describes you, then the bread and the cup are for you this morning. And so I want you to take the bread and the cup and I want you to hold them in your hands for just a minute and, and, and I want you to look at them. I, I want your eyes to go to the salvation of the Lord. Not anywhere around you, not someone you, you might be gathered with watching the service, not, not your, 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 the comments in the, in the phone and all, all that chat. That can wait for a few minutes. I, I want you to look down right now and just listen to my voice and I want you to look at the, the bread and, and the cup that you're holding in your hands and I want you to see this. You cannot work for them you cannot rescue yourself. Just believe and see the salvation of the Lord. For anyone who has put their trust in Christ, the elements that you hold in your hands right now are here to remind you that God's salvation work is real, that it is tangible. I want you to see it this morning and then in a minute you're gonna taste it. In whatever wilderness you're walking in, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you in the wilderness, and he will save you in the wilderness. And today, you need to see it, and you need to taste it so you can remember it. So we take the bread, and we remember now that this is the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, broken 
for you and me. Let's eat it now in remembrance of him. And now we take the cup and we remember that this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we drink it, let's drink it and remember him. Amen. Amen. All God's people said, amen. We thank God. We praise God for our salvation. It's been really good to be with you this morning. I want to leave you with this benediction. It's the same benediction that Lloyd left us with last week. What a great reminder it is. It it comes from the blessing that God gave to Aaron, the priest of the people, even in the wilderness. And this was Aaron's blessing that I leave you with this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we add this this morning. And may the Lord keep your shoes from wearing out to remind you in cloud and in fire, he is with you always. Amen. Have a great week.